Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guests as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Jim. I am delighted to have you both on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with me today. Um, I just was totally excited. I actually, uh, before I asked the two of you to introduce yourselves, and you're going to be familiar voices to a lot of my listeners, but I ha- I'm going to take this opportunity before I just le- sort of like hand the show to you guys. But I just want to say, so uh, to my to my listeners, I've got Jim Langley and Bruce Flessner. Um, these are some old timers in the fundraising space. These guys have been raising money for a long time. Uh, these guys, uh, 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 I have to say, uh, I'm very grateful to both of you. I was thinking about this uh, as I was drinking my first cup of coffee today. Um, I'm very grateful to both of you. You've made yourself available to me, both in person and on platforms like this one. Um, and I got to say, guys, you've in both cases, you've maintained a posture of as a peer with me, uh, despite the fact that you both have easily tw- twice the level of experience, both in the field and in consulting. Um, the other thing I got to say about you guys is that you've offered me pushback, um, but you've offered me pushback on some of the things that I've said, uh, but without doing it in a way that um, suggests that you've taken some of the things that I say personally. I'm very grateful for that. Um, but I think I think what I've learned about both of you as I've gotten to know you over the last couple of years is that like myself, fundraising is a vocation for both of you, and that it's informed by by values and beliefs that you both found outside the workplace. Um, so that's just sort of how I'm going to tee off the conversation. Our listeners may not know who you are, um, but I just kind of wanted to sort of put that in front of the conversation 
um, as an acknowledgement of of who you are and 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 that you're important to my to me and and even my team who uh, who knows that I'm routinely referencing Jim and Bruce. Um, let's ask the two of you to introduce yourself. Bruce, how about we start with you? Um, tell us who you are. I'm Bruce Lesnar. Let me start, Jason, by saying it's wonderful to be here. Uh, I remember uh, uh, following your career over the last several years, some conversations we have, a great lunch we had in Midtown Manhattan, and uh, your desire to uh, push back at me and saying how much you were look forward to changing the way that the old timers uh, who were uh, seen as experts were going to have to change the world around. And uh, so I was thrilled to, uh, to be at the podcast. And I've known my friend Jim Langley for more decades than either one of us would like to admit. Uh, and I've had a chance uh, several times in both of our careers to work together, and it's been great fun. I read his uh, wisdom on a regular basis, even if I disagreed with his comments recently about uh, Ohl's 442s, which we can talk about today about that. Uh, anyway, I- I'm Bruce Flessner. I began my career in uh, the spring of 1975, before many of your listeners are probably alive. Uh, if you think about this, uh, in 1974, a case came uh, into being the merger from the American Alumni Association and the American College Public Relations Association. So it's first full academic year. I began my career at a nice liberal arts college. Uh, went from there to a large research university, and then spent the vast majority of my uh, career uh, founding and working at Venswaley Flessner. Retired a few years ago. It didn't work out very well or very long for me. I had a chance to go to American University in Cairo uh, to do some interesting work in the Middle East on a wide variety of things, both advancement and other areas. And uh, I've come back uh, to the States and uh, I'm doing a little consulting here in the United States and in Europe and helping our old friend John Glear put together a new effort about coaching and training and some other problem solving. And so uh, that's a long way of saying that it's been uh, many decades of work. And uh, anyway, it's good to see you, Jim. Thank you. I'm Jim Langley. I spent 30 years in higher education, 21 as a vice president. And in those 21 years as a vice president, well, I ran three different campaigns at three different institutions. And I started my business about 13 years ago. So I'm in my 14th year and having the time of my life and trying to transfer uh, what I've learned uh, over that period of time. I have, like Bruce and like Jason, a very deep regard for philanthropy. Um, I didn't want to go into fundraising when it was first suggested to me by a president. I was a communicator at the time. I was uh, doing speech writing for that president. And when he suggested I get into fundraising, I remember the thought in my head was like hell. That was exactly (laughs) what I was thinking. And uh, I saw it as arm twisting. And quite frankly, I saw some of the people in the field and I wasn't deeply impressed. They, They seemed sort of officious and full of themselves. And um, but the president said, no, Jim, you're going to meet philanthropic people. You don't twist arms. They are already philanthropic. You're going to come alongside them and figure out the best way for them to express what is already an innate uh, desire on their part. So I thought, well, I'll give it a try. And and I think the world of this man, that was Paul Pearson at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. It changed my life. I saw a side of human nature that I didn't know existed and uh, or didn't know it existed on such a large scale. 
And when I reflect now on that career, I would say the greatest honor I received in my life was being asked multiple times to give eulogies at donors' funerals. So when you get into this business you get and do it well, you get close to people um, and you grieve their loss and you look back and realize how much you've learned from them. And so I approach the field with real seriousness, with an intent um, that says fundraising must be about the perpetuation, the preservation and the amplification of philanthropy. If it drains philanthropy, if it takes away from it, if it diminishes the philanthropic spirit, then we must take a hard look at it and we must question it. And sometimes that entails questioning the orthodoxy that surrounds itself. And I will assert from the outside that there is much too much orthodoxy surrounding fundraising that has been too unquestioned for too long. And some of it is inefficient, depletive, discouraging to fundraisers in the field. And um, now is the time to think afresh about how we take the best practices from the past, rethink them and reapply them. And and that was the post that I wrote that Bruce reacted to. That's fine. That's why we're here. Um, I value any kind of dialogue, pushback. Um, and I think we'll learn from this ensuing conversation. Yeah, guys. So before we dive into that, um, one of the things that I've always enjoyed with the conversations that with individuals like yourselves who have long, just, just simply longer tenures than I have. So, you know, we don't have to overemphasize how long any of us have been in the field, but there's a, there's a question that I've consistently asked and we're, we're broadcasting. This is probably 300 number somewhere in the range of 375 conversations. Um, but what I have consistently found with individuals who've been in the field longer than I have, is sort of an angst, sort of an angst and a frustration, maybe a degree of disappointment. Um, that's been sort of the consistent theme. And I'm thinking about, guys, I'm thinking about a presentation I'm doing in, a, in, a, in, in May. I'm going to be presenting to a, an AFP sort of at a regional uh, event. And I'm actually, th- and, and they've asked me to present on these five themes. And I'm thinking about one of those themes being the, um, you know, what is that underlying sort of theme that I've heard from longer tenured fundraisers like yourselves. Do you own that word angst or is there a different way that you would characterize your sort of where you find yourself looking back? Is there, is there a different word or would you further qualify that? What do you think, Bruce? We'll start with you. Um, I can separate out that there are some things about uh, the status of philanthropy in North America in particular, uh, but globally. Uh, which are disturbing. And Jim often talks about these, and I think that there is some angst that, that if he's had those. Uh, I can also say that uh, over the decades, I think that uh, the great colleges and universities have responded to those big cultural trends in fairly logical ways. And if I think about, and this is uh, sort of where I took exception with my good friend Jim at the beginning, if I think about what campaigning looked like uh, in 1970, uh, it was dramatically different. Uh, there were hardly any real development offices. It was almost exclusively for private universities. Uh, the amount of money involved uh, was uh, seemed significant at the time, but uh, you know it was 
you know, we only we raised less than $20 billion nationally uh, in, in those days. Uh, but what was different about it was is that campaigns, the annual fund and the ongoing efforts were the core about development programs. Uh, everybody was focused on it. The alumni offices typically ran those kinds of uh, year-to-year campaigns. And campaigns were the exception. They were the one-time, do it in a year, uh, get it done. We're going to build a new library. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. It looks very much like what Cy Seymour was talking about in the 1950s. When CASE came into being, by the way, if you read the stuff in the late 70s, everybody assumed that these campaigns would come to an end because we were building these new entities, these development offices of greater size. They were small compared to what we have today. And the campaigning would just become a, 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 by, a bygone era of that special effort. And indeed, that special way that we thought about this when uh, uh, Detroit was building muscle cars did disappear. But what replaced it was something I don't think anybody could have imagined in 1970 or 1974 when Case was first started, is the emergence of this sort of decade after decade mega campaigns, which I argue uh, have seen some great success. Jim, what's your reaction? Yeah, what's your uh, my, yeah, what's my your feeling? The word I would use is oh, sorry, Jason. Yeah, just what's your what's your thoughts on this notion of angst? Because I want to before I I've, I've got to get this word right with my audience in May, and so I want to know if angst is the right word. What do you think? Well, for me, the word is sorrow because of what I said about philanthropy. What I saw when I was a young practitioner now to realize that, you know, when I ran my first campaign at Georgia Tech, about 75% of people were giving. In the Deep South, it was larger than that. There was tremendous loyalty attached to institutions. By according to the last study, which is a few years old, it's down to 49.6. And all the indicators, it's going down further. So the next report will have it down in the mid-40s, I'm guessing. And what disturbs me, again, given how I believe this is an important expression of democracy itself, that the strength of philanthropy has a lot to do with the strength of democracy. Uh, sorrow is the, is the dominant feeling, Jason. Now, then you have to say, well, people haven't become less philanthropic. They've just gone off the institutional grid. They didn't change. What changed was their, their trust and faith in institutions, including the ones that Bruce touts as doing it largely the right way. He can't find many who haven't lost donors in that same period of time. He knows that, that while they have posted larger dollar amounts, they have lost donors because there's a sea change that has a tide that has swept across all of North American philanthropy, as he said. So they're all seeing a loss of donors. They're all seeing a decline in alumni participation. It's just a varying degree. So he also acknowledged that the back-to-back campaign has become the predominant way of campaigning. This book written by Michael Wirth and published last year also acknowledges that the back-to-back campaign, according to a survey, is now uh, the predominant way of being. So if campaigning is the predominant way of fundraising, if it's the dominant motif for the past 30 or 40 years, the same 30 or 40 years that saw the terrible erosion of philanthropy, I'm eager to see and hear from Bruce how he explains that campaigns apparently had nothing to do with this, even at the great universities that he's managed. That's what he calls them, great universities. (laughs) 
Uh, he didn't distinguish which ones were great. So I'm also eager to hear that. So I, I would say what we have to do is look at everything and particularly the most pronounced orthodoxies, the most dominant motifs, the most common techniques and say, what did they have to do with the erosion? And I will argue quite a bit. All right, guys. So I'm going to sit back. We've got, <laughs> I'm going to sit back. You guys are two smart guys. I'm going to remind my listeners. So for, for my listeners who might follow my conversations and Jim's and Bruce conversations and the myriad of others uh, in this space who enjoy conversations on LinkedIn, several weeks ago, uh, Jim, you suggested you referenced the 442. Uh, something I had to go and admittedly check with my father about. I didn't even know what the 442 was. Um, and, and, and then Bruce, you and I chatted about the, the reaction because there was a lot of people in our space who, uh, concurred with Jim's remarks. Um, and, uh, so I'm just going to sort of sit back and let two, two, you two gentlemen just banter it out. Um, I think this has to do with the, uh, the relevancy. Uh, the 442 was sort of inefficient. It was clunky. Um, but my father, I will say this to uh, sort of pay some credit to my father and how he did say it was a good car. He said it was a good stable car and it worked um, and it got you where you need to be. And I do live in York, Pennsylvania, and we have a great <laughs> hot rod show here in uh, in June. And everybody likes to see things like the 442 uh, cranked up and going down uh, old Route 30 here in town. Um, my kids have enjoyed that more than they've enjoyed going to places like Hershey Park and, and the like. So, um, all right, guys, it's all yours. Well, Jim, Jim I, I appreciate the issue that you're raising. Uh, if it was true that the decline in individual giving was unique to higher education, alumni participation was somehow, and in every other sector of American philanthropy, that we hadn't seen a decline then I think there'd be a lot of legitimacy to your uh, to your comments. My issue looks is is that this is a culture wide phenomenon that we're seeing, and so it's not unique to places that just go from decade by decade campaigning. It is something that's really a big part. Why did that happen? About that, I don't think that the decline was because of the structure of the campaign. You could argue that the campaigns have not successfully uh, been able to run against that large decline. But overall, you start to see that we have seen a lot of change in the culture. Uh, in 1970, when they were building those muscle cars, and by the way, they were more than just you could get one place to the next, you could get there in a hurry. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but if, if you didn't mind how much gasoline it went through, et cetera, right. how about that? Uh, is that, uh, you know, the, uh, the percentage of people working at Fortune 500 companies was near its peak. And the United Way, therefore, was one at its peak. And so we saw payroll deduction numbers that we don't see today. Uh, the number of percentage of Americans who, uh, uh, belong to a church or synagogue or mosque, uh, was about 75%. And today it's well under 50%. And so there was that time in which once a week they were taught about that. Uh, philanthropy in general uh, was a much more widespread phenomenon. Where you and I may not, not agree, Jim, is I sort of say that looking at that environment, uh, colleges and universities responded by focusing on where they could raise the most money, uh, which was not that they were, which was just a, ref which was a reflection of what was going on in the culture as opposed to being sort of uh, a failure of that decision. 
Yeah, I I agree, Bruce, that it wasn't the structure of the campaign that caused the decline, but the campaigns were a, a reflection of a set of assumptions that are often rooted in entitlement, in expectation, in the assumption that people should remain loyal to institutions, irrespective of how institutions treated them, how well they stewarded their gifts, how accountable they were. And what happened is a kind of a donor um, revolt. Uh, and if you look at the research of Jen Shang and Adrian Sargent, for instance, uh, where they are now saying, well, what is it the donors want? It is a more soulful experience. They want a higher degree of accountability. They want more demonstration of impact. They want to interact with the beneficiaries. They don't want to be reduced to a single dimension, pushed off to the side and said, you listen to our pitch, you give our money, you remain loyal. They're saying, no, 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 Uh, I'd like a little bit more. It isn't a complete writing off of those institutions as it is asking for more evidence and engagement. And so I think that's what we need to pay attention to. So in in setting up a parallel between the traditional campaign, which I would argue is still predominant, and I would argue that's why 420 people liked what I said, and it generated 125 comments and 24 reposts, is it, it resonated with a lot of practitioners out there who are saying, don't throw away the campaign, but break away from those assumptions, root campaigns in better listening, more rapid adaptation, and come up with a campaign that's much more cost-effective. Watch out for throwing money at collateral material, which doesn't work very much anymore. Watch out for expensive events, like kickoff events that often cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and don't move the needle. Watch out for, you know, all those things that you've been told are instrumental to fundraising success, get more authentic, get more real, get more conversational. And uh, that's where I'm pushing is to set up a contrast between what I think is the predominant traditional model is still ubiquitous. I run into it all the time. The set of assumptions that campaigns operate in phases and those the labeling of those phases is a bit silly, like the public phase is a silly phase and silly name. There is no public other than the constituency you develop. You cannot market a public out of thin air. You actually have to develop relationships. The most amount of money that you're likely to raise in a campaign is going to come from those who have already given. So stewardship is more important. So all that's saying, Bruce, is can we go back and look at that traditional model? As I said, extract the good in it, which might be discipline, focus, uh, careful thinking about where the future lies, and then start introducing new, adaptive, nimble, more responsive elements, throw away some of the nomenclature, and simply describe what's going on. Don't march people through artificial steps and ask them to waste time and effort on things that aren't productive, like volunteer bodies and those things that I mentioned before. <clears throat> we see one more thought, and I'll shut up and let you talk for a while. We see so many people raising more money when they're not in campaign because the staff is free of those false expectations incumbent in many campaigns. And so your best fundraisers are actually in the field interacting with donors more and not going through this check the box approach uh, through the orthodox campaign that really doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Okay. Well, Jim, the, um, 
the challenge about looking about what donors want is we really don't have any longitudinal studies about this, and we probably won't for a very long period of time. I think it's easy for us to believe somehow back in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, uh, when we didn't have this current pattern, that uh, there was this uh, golden era of uh, good donor relations. For those of us who can remember it, uh, sending off a mimeographed letter, uh, Jason doesn't even know what that means, uh, uh, that said, Dear Classmate, and was signed by your class agent, used to produce, uh, depending upon how prestigious uh, your college or university was, somewhere between 20 or 30 or 40 or even for a handful of places, more than 50% participation. It wasn't like we were doing a great job explaining anything about this. So I would argue that while we may not do a perfect job about this, and I don't think I've, my comments were intended to say that I defend everything that we do, but I think it has evolved, uh, that the culture has evolved in huge ways, which have said some, some things. Some of it begins actually at, at the beginning uh, with the baby boomers uh, and their lack of faith after Vietnam and civil rights movement and Watergate and other things. And every generation since has shown less faith in institutions overall. Uh, so the pattern looks the same whether one is talking about uh, human services or about, you know, youth agencies or anything else is that we have seen this continual decline in the number of donors. And that bothers me a great deal. So I don't know whether angst is quite the right word, Jason, but it bothers me a great deal because I do think that uh, philanthropy uh, has a, a certain uh, impact on the donor as well as on the cost. My only issue is, is that in responding to it, we've got, moved to a system in which they're very large gifts uh, and chase that. Part of that also reflects what's a different economy than we had 50 years ago. The level of economic inequality has been extraordinary. And so uh, when they were building those bulls 442s, uh, corporations and foundations each gave away roughly 5% of the philanthropic pie at that that time, uh, some years, uh, the companies were giving a little more than the foundations. Today, the growth of permanent charitable capital, uh, namely the foundations, has been extraordinary. So they're a big, big force. And I would argue that colleges and universities have done a very nice job of trying to address that. It uh, doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to find ways in which we can engage a higher percentage of our alumni. Uh doesn't mean that we have done everything perfectly about this. But if I look at each decade, we have tended to see some significant increases uh, in the overall giving to uh, to great and, and near great and other uh, colleges and universities. So. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I think the um, some campaigns in some settings have been very effective at harvesting. And so I'm not arguing that point with you, Bruce. What I'm saying is, is that harvest was occurring. Alumni participation, you're, you're referring to higher education. Of course, my post was broader than that, but if we could just talk about higher education, the context you've put it in, alumni participation was declining. When I went in and looked at data at institutions that I was hired to help um, after campaigns, I saw after a campaign, particularly the ones that focused heavily on brick and mortar, that we saw um, alumni falling away and we saw, saw small investors falling away. So when you say they've done a good job, you're putting in a fundraising context. I'm trying to put it now as a counterpoint into a community building context and saying, well, congratulations. Uh, what you've done is to keep the church alive by getting fewer, older, wealthier people to make the church better appointed. 
But when I look in the pews, I see fewer and fewer middle-aged people and next to no young people in those pews. So congratulations on passing the offering basket and getting record amounts. But Bruce, I would submit the church itself, in this case, higher education, is in trouble in terms of its credibility, its um, it, its um, attraction um, to younger generations, to future generations of donors, for the very reasons that you say it has been successful. Well, Jim, first, uh, I, I remember reading your post under sort of the case head uh, thing, and I have tried to limit my feedback about higher ed. Uh, if we want, because I can differentiate, it seems to me, between the great issues facing philanthropy in the United States and globally. And I'm very, very concerned about the issues that you have raised, uh, about the decline in, uh, in giving patterns, uh, and what we need to be able to do about it. And I think it's a much bigger issue than any institution's campaign can go. When I look about, however, about sort of from a uh, campaign viewpoint in higher ed, I think that they've responded in a fairly rational way to what the concern was, which is, is that we have an inequality of, of, we have a concentration of wealth the likes of which we've never seen, uh, the number of billionaires, the number of people over $100 million. And we have focused a great deal of time and attention at those recognizing how tough the rest of this was going to be. Uh, but so yeah. uh, that's the reason I think the campaigns have, have not been a failure. And by the way, I will go back and just say not to be redundant. I think that the campaigns in uh, 2023 are as different from 1970, as that um, Detroit muscle car is from a Tesla with a gazillion uh, little microchips and other things inside of it to make it go. Uh, I think they've evolved in, in very, very significant ways. Yeah, but but they still use the same terminology. Uh, Darrow Z- uh, Zendenstein, is that how I say it? Mm-hmm. it says that what has become ubiquitous, and he's right, um, um, is the, you know, the sort of Strategic planning leads to campaign priorities and campaign pillars. Campaign pillars. Uh, Bruce is someone, and, and you know the same thing, as someone who's run campaigns and managed campaigns. You're forcing things into those campaign pillars to make it look like that's what people gave to. Gifts come in in different ways for different reasons and dis- different designations. But practitioners then go, oh, that doesn't fit with the pillar. So this pillar is the closest approximation. Approximation. Then they announce this is what people gave to. You and I know that's not, and there's too much force fitting. Why don't we simply acknowledge what people have given to absent the pillars? You see what I mean? We're trying to create the appearance of causation when it's much more correlation. And every good scholar will tell you that's a fundamental mistake to confuse correlation with causation. So campaigns end up taking credit when they may have corollary effects, but they are not causal of many of the relationships that you, or many of the results you cited. Now, you talked about early on, um, you know, the mimeographed. And Mm -hmm. so one of the things, one of the deeper reflections, Bruce, is, was fundraising technique overstated from the beginning? How much did fundraising technique ever have to do with giving? If the mimeograph produced 50% participation, wasn't the 50% participation rooted in deep affection and regard for the institution that provided the degree? 
wasn't it review, uh, rooted in a deep appreciation for professors who lived at the poverty line? And someone said they're like secular priests and we need to we need to give back and help people who are so self-sacrificing and so selfless. And wasn't it based in, in uh, understanding that many of those institutions operated on such thin margins that without alumni support, that they couldn't persist in doing the good things that they have done. So maybe one of our deepest reflections is, did we from the very beginning overstate fundraising technique and understate the conditions that give rise to philanthropy? And should we now as consultants go back and address the conditions that give rise to philanthropy and get off the technique bandwagon? Well, Jim, there's there's no doubt, uh, at least the campaigns that I've had exposure to, and they're some of the largest ones that there have ever been, that we don't, uh, going back to your first comment about pillars, is we don't always uh, achieve equal success among all the pillars, and we have some other things about this. that I can't think of a campaign where I sort of thought we perfectly did this. The pillars are designed, at least in part, to respond to something which I think you're a big advocate for, which is that we need to find a way in which we can tell our story. And I do think that one of the realities about campaigning and why it has worked as a successful vehicle is it forces uh, institutions to have to begin to sort of define what their story is. Uh, it's easy for uh, you to go on and continue to talk about we have students that are coming here, we have degrees, we have alumni that are participating, we have research agendas, et cetera, is that the effort around the campaign has at least allowed us to begin to say, What's the why for what we're doing? What's the, the process about that? It may not be a perfect way, but I do think it's been one of the realities. As for the conditions uh, driving all those wonderful things a generation ago, uh, I would just look around and say, if you spend very much time with uh, liberal arts college folks, you can begin to find out that one could still make the case that they have thin margins or no margins and that they have an underpaid faculty and that those are reasons that we could continue to have done them. I think uh, alumni in the classes of 23 or 03 or 83 uh, basically uh, uh, ha have had great experiences in the transformation of their life because of great professors and all the kind of emotional attachments that you've, that you've noted about that. I don't think that that's changed very much uh, over the decades. Maybe you have a different feeling than that, Jim. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, we did the research, Bruce, um, um, a group of people, and uh, looked at declining alumni participation. And it was one staggering that no research had been done. No one actually had gone to talk to alumni. And so uh, this was uh, Cindy Cox Roman who led this exercise. And um, she talked to um, alumni from the um, U.S. News and World Report had rated the top 100 institutions. Uh, they were already giving, and she first conducted focus groups and then did large-scale surveys as to why they weren't um, giving. They're already giving, but why weren't they giving more? The number one reason, by far and away, for every age group, except those over, the 60, over 65, was, I quote, I've given enough already in tuition payments. That the rising cost of higher education discouraged giving to higher education like no other factor. And it's provable in the sense those come out of the mouths of people who graduated. They are otherwise grateful for the education, but they're increasingly questioning whether the cost of the education is equal to 
greater than or less than the value they received from it. So those who believe that the value greatly exceeds the cost continue to give. But Bruce, that is, according to the research, driving down participation. The second one was, uh, or among the top reasons, I want to make sure I'm not looking at the survey, but among the top reasons was my alma mater does little to reach out to me besides asking for money. So I'm familiar with some firms, I won't name names, that pounded away at the importance of asking, that turned advancement operations into asking machines, that faulted the alumni association for not being more active askers, and maybe even browbeat them as being sort of sissies for not being more aggressive fundraisers. So as a result, many alumni felt like they had been reduced to a single dimension, and that was to give back, come back, look back, give back. And they started to question whether that paradigm was fair. And they started to say, wait a second, I am giving back uh, according to the, um, you know, by paying off this debt every month. I am giving back. So the phrase itself, give back, ran hollow. I still see it on giving days, give back. It's like you have a tin ear for debt-strapped alumni. And, And one of the most compelling reasons where we saw the biggest disparity between what institutions were reporting and alumni were saying was alumni, fourth dominant reason, I don't feel a deep emotional connection to my alma mater. That alma mater translates to nourishing mother, Bruce, and a significant, a huge portion of alumni aren't buying alma mater is real. Mom isn't there. The casserole's been left on the table. And when we come home, mom says, I need more money for rent. And if you don't have that, let's not talk. Well, Jim, again, the challenge with the, with the research is we, is we don't have a longitudinal, so I can't figure out precisely what we look like. But I do know that that stripped down bulls 442 in 1970 sold for around $3,000. Uh, and that colleges and universities were debating vigorously whether they could raise their price to three thousand dollars, their 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 tuition levels. Uh, today, a brand new car costs well over fifty thousand uh, dollars on average, according to all the experts about that. And so, in some ways, we've had this for a very very long period of time that higher education has been an expensive venture. But once upon a time, and I'll go back to the issue, which is that I think that there are other factors other than the way we react. To have to be able to explain all that. It could have been a mistake to have built as large a development programs as we did, if that's part of what you're talking about, just about the, the, the money. Because uh, before the emergence of CASE, most of this was happening in the alumni associations, in the alumni secretary, and the class agents, and that kind of a tradition. We've lost almost all of that. Again, I think that the world has changed dramatically over the decades. I don't think it has been stuck anyplace. It's changed in, in big kind of ways. And, uh, you know, and so they, and the, but the opportunities uh, in a pre-internet uh, uh, era for lots of interactions were quite limited. We had a few uh, homecomings and we had some magazines and some other e- efforts, but somehow uh, we have many more opportunities today than we had at that time. And not to be redundant, but I'll go back to, if this was a unique phenomenon about higher ed, I would say we probably have something that looks. But I look across it, and I do think that there are huge issues facing the culture uh, about why it is that people are just less philanthropic in general. Uh, giving to churches is down. Giving to uh, human service agencies, the number of donors. 
Giving Tuesday was a wonderful idea and started out as a new and innovative way to talk about how to broaden the base of all the donors in the United States and other places. And pretty soon we found out from the latest data that, by the way, the number of dollars is up and the number of donors is down. So even in sort of brand new, innovative ways to talk about broadening the base, we haven't seen very much success. Right. So, Bruce, that's where that that may be where you and I there, there are several points where we we disagree. But, um, you know, it's not um, a black or white situation for me. I'm I'm questioning. I'm challenging. I'm saying, do we have ample evidence? You say, yes, this is a societal wide phenomenon. I agree that trust in institutions is declining. But the reason that trust in institutions is declining is that people feel that they're not representative of them. Jason and I have had this discussion, the American Revolution, one of the rallying cries of the American Revolution was no taxation without representation. I will argue that what's happening now in this philanthropic revolution is that people are not becoming less philanthropic, but saying to institutions, no philanthropy without representation. If you don't hear my voice, if you don't respond to me, if you're not accountable, I'm going to go off the grid. I'm going to do something on my own. I'm going to do something interpersonally. I hear, Bruce, in some instances, some institutions and some spokespersons saying the American public has become less philanthropic. I don't buy it. The American public is less giving to institutions, but is exercising philanthropy elsewhere. And it's incumbent upon institutions to find out why they lost trust, not blame the institution. And then the final point to your everything's increased, Bruce, again, you're a smart man. You know that nothing came close to the rate of increase that higher education saw over a 40-year period. No good, no service, no commodity rose as quickly. And you also know at the same time I was in those organizations and didn't see a lot of cost cutting, didn't see a lot of reflection on the cost being passed on to, to the consumer or to the student. Obviously, there were always good people. There were always conscientious leaders. But as an industry, emulation started to take place and everybody started to raise costs. And some people argued, Bruce, you'll remember, that increasing cost in and of itself would make the institution more attractive to the prospective student because they would equate it with value. So they rose the cost, they, they increased the cost to increase the pool of student applicants. So now we have to reflect like we all do when we reach certain points in life. And I don't think either one of you would argue at our age, we were always right, that we made some mistakes, that we grow by reflecting on what we didn't do well, that we serve the future by saying to, to coming um, and current generations, here's what we've learned, don't do that. And so I, I will look forward to future conversations with you and look forward to hearing you say, here's what we could learn from techniques in the past, from fundraising techniques in the past that we wouldn't recommend doing today that we think are no longer apt. And here's a more stripped down, more cost-effective way of raising money and building, building constituency and renewing trust going forward. That's where I would like to meet you not in an either or, everything is good, everything is defensible, um, but let's talk about what's good and let's talk about what is increasingly indefensible and what we want current and future generations to learn from our collective experience. 
Well, Jim, I'm not here to talk about the admission strategy of uh, all of uh, higher education. There is some evidence that suggests that places that chose to set tuition levels below their peers didn't see the influx that one would normally think about. And that's a whole other complicated issue to talk about. I think it's encouraging that more and more institutions are talking about ways in which people from modest means will not pay uh, uh, any tuition. Wayne State University just announced this last week that I think it's anybody in the state of Michigan whose family income is less than $70,000 won't be charged tuition. I think you're going to see more and more of that kind of an effort. Uh, that will, will uh, that, that's, a, that's a right and, 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 and just kind of a way to do that. Um, and we've had the Ivies have been done this in, in increasingly numbers, so it's a big factor. I didn't mean for this conversation to be an us or them either, or to a right or wrong. Uh, I have a good deal of respect for the process. Here's just my basic thesis, is uh, given a time in which the number of donors to all causes was going down, uh, and given a time in which there's this huge creation of extraordinary wealth, and people like the Gates and the Buffets brought the giving pledge out. I think that the move to these large campaigns uh, has been successful in achieving some great gains in giving. So that uh, 50 years ago, foundations were about 5% of the group. Uh, I remember in the late 90s, I served on something called New Ventures in Philanthropy that the Council on Foundations and the Regional Association of Grant Makers put together. And we were looking about how to create more permanent charitable capital was the buzzword we all used, which was foundations and other activities like that. I mean, today, foundations are about 20% of the total. The highest percentage of that's going into higher education. I think that, that colleges and universities have responded in a big way towards that. I think that you look about the top 1%, and I recognize that there are lots of people who are disappointed or concerned that rich people are giving away money. Uh, that doesn't bother me at all. Uh, 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 it, you know, we were at a time in which Rolls Royce had record sales this last year. Uh, the number of yachts over 200, 300, and 400 feet has set a world record at a level that we couldn't have imagined. The amount of wealth that's been created. I happen to like the fact that, that they want to give away a lot of money. And I think that the campaigns have helped people focus on that. It wouldn't have to be the only way, but I think that it's too much to sort of say that it's, that it's not been a great strategy. All right. So uh, thank you, Bruce. And, and um, I understood. And my, my counter to that is um, it's a bit analogous. What you're saying to is that we recognize that oil was a finite resource. So we seized the day. We extracted as much from the ground as we could and we burned it up fast and good for us. But now what do we do? Because there isn't much left to work with going forward. So because we thought only in one dimension and didn't think about both taking advantage of the moment and creating more sustainable opportunities that many institutions are scrambling to look for more sustainable fundraising practices and are in a deficit situation because of uh, following the highly assumptive orthodoxy that ruled fundraising for so long. And I don't think that it's, it's ruled fundraising. I think we've adapted in big ways. And you and I can disagree about how much terminology we've hung on to and about the process. But I do think it looks like something that no one could have imagined a few decades ago in terms of the way that we've responded to that. And by the way, it's always been true 
even back in the old days, that uh, older people were more likely to give and they were more philanthropic. Uh, now, the drop-offs are a little more dramatic right now, as are lots of the values that we see in millennials and Gen Xers, which were significantly different than what we'd seen historically for at least most of the 20th century. All right. So, guys, before before we wrap up, I, I, there's sort of an, a question that I just wanted to sort of get both of your responses on. And this is what, sort of what we're going to wrap up on because you guys really got me intrigued. And I, I feel like I'm sort of stuck between the, the two of you because I, I, I want to agree with Jim and then I want to agree with Bruce. And, and here's here's the thought I want to hear both of your responses to. Essentially, we're talking about two different fundraisers and two different donors. Um, you know, my mother's generation is essentially the generation it's the baby boomers it's, it's your peers right uh and, and i oftentimes here on the podcast talk about my mother who who literally was born you know two blocks from disneyland it's the baby boomer generation that i call it the disney effect that's the donor that's the, that's the donor who wasn't the donor 25 years ago um and in some ways i want to say my mother doesn't want a 442, but she sure as hell wants something that perhaps looks like it. You know what I'm saying? So in some ways, I want to kind of side with the idea that maybe we're just going to need to. I mean, my mother and, and, and you know, mom's not going to be listening to this, but they have bought like four or five RVs over the last 10 years just trying to figure out what the hell they want to do with their retirement. So they're not buying 442s, but they sure as hell are buying other similar things. And at the same time, Jim, on, on your point, I feel like in some ways, Jim, a lot of a lot of your argument hinges on just an awareness that the fundraising profession as a whole has grown up. I feel like in a lot of ways, your argument is just is is very sympathetic to the fact that on the fundraising side, we've got a hell of a lot of people that are being very reflective about this. Um, and when you think about like the responses that you got on the LinkedIn post, those weren't donors, those were fundraisers. And I, yes. I don't know that, I don't know that you would have been able to get that sort of a response, you know, 25, 30, 40 years ago That's right. when we were creating the 442 version of a capital campaign. I mean, is that really what we're talking about here, Jim and Bruce, that we're basically talking about a different donor and a different, a different fundraiser? I don't. I don't know. I mean, again, I think you know. In the synthesis, a great deal is to be learned. I come away feeling this that Bruce and I are representing two different constituencies, um, and I think 420 fundraisers responded and affirmed what I said because they feel and experience that. Um, and so, because I am an innate listener or researcher, I tend to reflect, and then I do a lot of listening exercises. And of course, my career was marked by listening to donors. And I saw this happening. I saw this disenchantment occurring. I saw this and, of course, published on this decades ago. And, you know, we can cite. So I, I think what, uh, you know, I had my antenna out. I saw circumstances changing. I agree with Bruce. It was larger than fundraising, but it was symptomatic of a kind of disenfranchisement that was occurring and an erosion of trust in institutions. And I was saying, no, we can't do everything about societal change, but we can do something about our relationships and our tone, our demeanor, and our expectations. So um, it may be two different donors. Bruce may see it a different way, but I think Bruce does unwittingly represent the status quo, staying the course, and making modest modifications. And I argue for making more dramatic, more rapid modifications if we are to increase and sustain the level of institutional support. And Jim, I guess I uh, 
I, I look at this and say, first of all, that uh, campaigns have changed in big ways. I don't think of them as static at all. I do think that they will continue to evolve and they'll continue to revolve and look about what the donor bases look like. Now, to the extent to which we have tools today, Jim, which were inconceivable to have a generation ago. Uh, we can segment donors. We have more knowledge about the donors. We have new ways in which we can communicate with the donors. And all of the things that have been tried uh, to broaden our basis to date have not succeeded. Now, you have, you're, you're 100% correct. It's a, it's a huge problem. And I'd like to return to an America in which 80%, 90% of all people made a gift every year because I think that's something good for the culture. But if you're working about sort of how – what, what the culture currently looks like, I do think that we've been sort of rational in the way that we have evolved. And I don't think, Jason, it's just going to be about uh, seniors in uh, that grouping, though it's always been the largest donors have always come from an older group. Yes. Uh, but I mean, uh, my, my dear son is a successful young entrepreneur. Uh, he called me one day and wanted to know why the development office at his alma mater was was one to come and visit him. And I said, it's a matter of public record that you guys just went through a sale and merger. Right. Uh, they figured out that you have resources. Right. Uh, and he goes, oh, all right. Uh, and so uh, and he, you know, and that's that's just uh, I think I think we're fairly effective about how to, to look at this. The reality right now, and I'm not in favor of the kind of increasingly inequality, economic inequality that's happened. But I live in the real world in which that has happened and the ability of higher education to inspire great donors and to tell a story to them has resulted in a flux of uh, just very, very large gifts. It wasn't very long ago that a million dollars was a very, very big gift and you could get all kinds of publicity about it. And uh, now we routinely look at just uh, just great gifts. And going forward, we haven't talked very much about this yet, and I know we're running out of time, but, you know, 13% of all the gifts made last year went in the creation of new foundation assets. Yes. Right. We're going to have an echo over the next generation. Right. So, so that 20% that's coming from foundations today is going to continue to increase and increase and increase. And I would just uh, say that I think that it's uh, it's an opportunity that colleges and universities will continue to have to take a look at is who are our donors? Are they creating this as their vehicles? And how do we begin to engage them and continue to receive, you know, be the number one recipient of foundation support of all the sectors? Take take the scenario that Bruce just you just sold your company. He's saying to a relative, that's why they're coming after you. Now listen to the experience of the frontline fundraiser who makes that call, and they will tell you that the donor will say in the vast majority of those cases, ah, so you just discovered I sold a company. Where have you been for the last 25 years? I heard that repeatedly in my frontline fundraising career, and I bet when you play this, your listeners will say that's what they're hearing, and that's in part what's wrong and what I'm trying to advocate change about. So Bruce is right. The technology is magnificent in allowing us to identify and segment. But Bruce then also has to acknowledge, even with that technology, it is not stemming the erosion of trust nor the loss of donors. So one of the great ironies is more tools than ever before at our disposal, and the philanthropic community continues to erode. Yeah, Jim, so what's the value of that technology, Bruce? It's a harvest. You're sharpening the scythe. 
you're not building the constituency. Jim, I, I apparently wasn't very clear. I was not coming out and suggesting that the emergence of all these new things has magically been anything. No, no. Uh, I'm actually, uh, you and I probably agree on this one. Uh, we've run lots of things. And that is that despite all of these very smart people who keep introducing new kinds of interesting tools about this, is that they really haven't had much impact on what is a long decline for all kinds of charitable and philanthropic causes across the board. Right. I'm just so so I'm 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 with you about that, which is that I'm not trying to defend and say, oh gosh, they suddenly have found the key. Quite the contrary, it seems to me that a number of the things that we've that have emerged over the last uh, generation haven't been the key. Yeah, and that's and 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 I'm gonna and we're gonna wrap up here. We probably lost a, a good twenty thirty percent of our listeners. We usually lose them about forty five minutes in. They've made it to the office by now, and they're not listening to. Uh, they're tired of listening to us fellows banter around uh, the old four forty two. Um, hey guys, it has certainly been a pleasure. You're both always welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce. Good to see you both. Thank you. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.